This is what's called a stepped wedge cluster randomised control trial. It's actually about making every day really meaningful and purposeful. Even conventional or complementary medicines weren't working for them. Something is going on in the kinds of spaces that we are building. They kept trying to find something else. Think. Think Health on 2SER 107.3. Hello and welcome to the show. Ellen Lee Beta with you. Today, how to spot the next big sports star. So the more dimensions, and by dimensions I mean anthropometry, physical fitness, decision-making, skill proficiency, etc., the more dimensions we look at, the better the idea we get about future potential. And why males should exercise their pelvic floor as much as their pecs. Last month, the City of Sydney's homelessness count recorded over 480 people sleeping rough. It's the highest number of rough sleepers since the count began in 2010, and an overwhelming 82% of these rough sleepers are male. Homeless people are a challenge for a range of services, including the health sector. But the Matthew Talbot Health Clinic has been making health services accessible to homeless men for the last 30-odd years. UTS has recently been involved in research looking at the effectiveness of the service. People ask me this question quite a lot and I always say that there are absolutely no averages in a homeless person but if you want to give me sort of a a kind of an average snapshot of a person I'd say they're between the ages of say 35 and 55. Um, They've probably been to prison in the past. Um, They've probably had very disadvantaged backgrounds right from the start They probably have a major mental illness such as schizophrenia. They probably have a comorbid addiction problem as well, drugs or alcohol, and possibly gambling. And by this stage in their lives, they probably have some significant um, physical health problems as well. Um, So that is a very unhappy snapshot. This is the picture of your average homeless man. And with mental health and physical health issues as difficult to manage as this, it probably doesn't come as a shock to you that your average homeless man will die 25 years before an ordinary man. Oh, hi, I'm Julie Smith. Um, I'm the team leader of the Matthew Talbot Hostel's primary healthcare clinic. Julie has been working in her current role at the clinic for the last five years and initially started working at the clinic in the 90s. The current service is extremely comprehensive. There is a whole suite of mental health experts, as well as optometrists, podiatrists and, of course, GPs. Um, so what we do is provide a, uh, a fairly comprehensive mental health service here at the hostel. We have two visiting consultant psychiatrists who are fabulous at what they do. We also have credentialed mental health nurses who can work um, alone and assessing people. We also have a um, mental health nurse practitioner, which is fantastic because that, that person as a nurse can assess and, and treat people with medication um, alongside work from the psychiatrist. Um, in the past, we've had a psychologist. We're missing one at the moment. That's someone we could we could do with. We we offer a lot of um, different sorts of health services. So we have um, a GP two mornings a week. We have a, a fabulous optometrist that's been coming to us for about twenty five years once a week. We have volunteer podiatrists that also come here around about once a week. 
our nurses run smoking cessation clinics and they also run a metabolic health clinic. Um, this is alongside running the, the general health clinic where men can turn up um, you know, anytime they like. There are no barriers to accessing this service and they can come in with any type of problem that they wish. Going to see your family GP isn't always an option as a homeless person. So clinics like Matthew Talbot provide accessible free care 365 days a year. Going to see a doctor these days is getting more and more expensive. Homeless people simply can't pay and there are, I think, fewer and fewer doctors at bulk bill. So that's one issue. Another issue is that it's very common that you have to wait when you, have to, when you go to an emergency department or if you go to your GP's office, even if you have an appointment. Some people simply are unable to wait. It may be because they're agitated. It might be because they're hearing voices. It may be because they're embarrassed that they smell or they feel that they stand out in the crowd. Another thing is that um, not all GPs are, you know, fantastic in understanding the needs of a person who is homeless. And so simply they don't, a homeless person may not feel welcome, not just in the, the waiting room, but in the consulting room to, to get across what your issue is in less than five minutes when you're troubled is, um, is really difficult. The University of Technology Sydney has partnered with the Matthew Talbot Clinic to understand how homeless men are using these services. Uh, my name is Michael Roach, uh, Dr Michael Roach. I'm um, Senior Lecturer and currently Director of Postgraduate Nursing Studies. I work for the Centre for Health Services Management and the Faculty of Health at uh, UTS. Michael is one of the researchers on the study. He says along with mental health issues, the men have other physical issues like diabetes and arthritis. Things like diabetes, certainly we see cardiac problems. We see in our research we've, we've come across some, uh, some notable podiatry and um, other physical issues like arthritis, which seems to be a little more prevalent than in the normal um, run-of-the-mill sample of anyone. We're not quite sure of uh, the causation, but in any case that's certainly supported in the literature and it would, it's echoed in our findings. Specifically, Michael and his team spoke to the men to find out why and how they use the service. We looked at um, the type of problems that, uh, that men were presenting with. We looked at their perception of their main health problem and how that was affecting their life. We looked at um, their perception of the service because we were very interested in what was attracting them to this service. We looked at their perception in how this service and the care that was provided there was um, facilitating appropriate health care. So that might mean admission to hospital in some instances or it might mean preventing admission and referral to uh, other tertiary type services, specialist type services, um, endocrinologist or a mental health team or whatever it might be. The homeless community is very hard to engage when it comes to health care and men find out about the clinic through word of mouth or by staying at the attached hostel. However they end up there, Michael says the men are very happy with the service. Men definitely report that they're happy. In fact, um, out of the men that we surveyed, I cannot recall a negative comment. Um, they certainly find that the, the service provided is appropriate and supportive and they have identified for us a number of things which, um, which help them access the service and help them stay well in their terms. This may be down to the level of trust and type of people that work at the clinic. Julie Smith again. I think trust is a, an enormous aspect of, of what we do. I mean, a, a person doesn't have to trust us. Um, and sometimes, you know, they in, in some cases, perhaps they never will. It's really helpful if they do. But we have to gain that trust. It's not an automatic thing. 
that's why we have an open access to service. We've got no barriers or as few barriers as possible to getting a service so no one has to pay. Um, no one has to make an appointment. We try to make people feel welcome. I think one of the aspects of working here that's incredibly important is that you need to want to work with homeless people. You, you need to have a sort of natural curiosity um, and interest in, in people who are homeless. And at the same time, you know, be friendly, open, transparent. Um, and, and people know if you're not being authentic and they'll tell you in the most colourful way. While the goal of services like these is to help men's health, it can also cause a reduction in the number of homeless men presenting to the emergency department. Currently, NGOs do do that, um, do provide these services. They provide these services to facilitate good health care. That's their primary aim, but it does have the effect of reducing reliance on acute services like emergency departments and acute wards in hospitals. Um, at least that's, um, that's what we suspect. I think one of the things that we do really well is that we um, prevent people from going to hospital unnecessarily. So we, you know, spend a lot of time providing healthcare that prevents the need for people to actually present to a GP or present to uh, an emergency department. That saves the Department of Health an awful lot of money, but more importantly, it provides healthcare for someone um, at the right time so that we can actually sort of diagnose, assess, you know, maintain their health so that their health doesn't, um, their health only improves or at least the conditions are stabilised rather than getting worse. Um, and that's often the thing that actually end, they end up going to the emergency department when it's too late. The Matthew Talbot Clinic is one of the only services of its kind left in Sydney. And with the homeless population as high as it is and emergency departments as stressed as they are, it's pretty important to keep services like this running. You're listening to Think Health on 2SER 107.3. Did you play sport when you were younger and think to yourself, how could I make it to the big time? You might have heard of talent scouts, referring to the coaches and people who attend matches on the lookout for the next Roger Federer or Elise Perry. In the sports world, identifying the next elite player is a process called talent identification. But as Job Franson from UTS told Jake Morecambe, it involves more than just eyeing the fast and strong players on the field. Talent identification is looking at those individuals who have the most potential to succeed in the future. And so far, our talent identification structures have mostly focused on momentary performance. So, so far, we know very little about what talent identification actually is, other than that it is the potential to identify future performance. So when you're talking about momentary identification, do you mean looking at a player who might be on the field and particularly talking about youth who are playing sport and being like, he or she is going to trump through and be the best, but that's not always the case? Yeah, so how talent identification, as the general public knows it, usually works is there would be a few coaches or talent scouts or whatever around a field with some youth athletes playing a particular game. And they would be looking at that game and then subjectively assessing performance of those youth players and saying that particular player scored four tries, um, had 10 line breaks. That is future potential. Two major things that are not often discussed when it comes to talent identification are maturation, 
and something called the relative age effect. And it's very important for people to understand that a talent identification process is even much more than just the objective measurements. It is taking into account which players are early maturing, which players are late maturing. And the relative age effect is the unequal birth month distribution that we see all the time in professional sports. That means in high-level youth academies, we see a lot more players born in January, February, March who have a developmental advantage over players born in September, October, November, December. And it's very important for us to understand that a player who is born late in the year and shows a lot of potential might actually have more potential to excel in the future than a player who shows potential and who is born early in the year because they might have one extra year of developmental time or one extra year to develop their potential than someone who's born early in the year. And all those factors, taking them into account, makes talent identification a lot more difficult than just standing around a soccer field and saying, oh, this kid is going to be good, or wow, that's a really big goalkeeper, that's the one we need for the Mariners or Sydney FC in the future. And assessing future potential is largely based on those objective measurements and not those subjective that we are used to right now. So what do you mean by objective measurements? We usually organize really large testing days where we get um, a lot of children from one particular club or a few clubs in. And we do different objective measurements around their anthropometry, their, um, which is their stature and their body size. We do assessments around their motor competence, their physical fitness, their sports participation history, how well they make decisions, what their technical proficiency within the game is like. And those objective measurements, all of that together, if we scramble that together, we get a pretty good idea of which players have potential to grow in the future and which players don't. What sports does this refer to or does talent identification work differently for all sports like does this happen in tennis does this happen in football does it happen everywhere talent identification works very very different depending on the sport for example if we take gymnastics for example where we know that girls at age 16 could be world top performing at the olympics that means that talent identification for gymnastics happens very very early in the sports careers of those girls however if we look at triathlon for example where you can keep performing until you're 39 40 41 at a world level then talent identification is a lot later so both in terms of time as in terms of the objective measurements that we use talent identification is very very different between sports one of the main sports that you look at in particular is soccer. So what is the talent identification process for looking at youth soccer players? Researchers have found that it should be multidimensional. So the more dimensions, and by dimensions I mean anthropometry, physical fitness, decision-making, skill proficiency, etc., the more dimensions we look at, the better the idea we get about future potential. In soccer, talent identification has advanced quite a way, especially in, in European soccer, where we are now able to get objective measurements on multiple dimensions of youth soccer players from 6 to 18 years old. We start understanding which factors are important for adherence to a high-level program. We start understanding which factors are important 
to get your playing minutes in the first team to get a professional contract and things like that. Is it a predictable process? Because might there be someone who underperforms somewhere, but in two years down the line, they might have completely changed their game or changed the way that they play. And then you kind of look at them and like they could make the elite now. Yes, exactly. And the Belgian national team at the moment, because I'm Belgian, that is a very good example of that because we have a lot of players who are very proficient on a skill level. But as young players, they weren't very tall. They weren't very fast. They weren't very powerful because they were late maturing. They had their growth spurt later than the other kids. And that meant that throughout their careers, they were actually underperforming. However, they're catching up now and they have such high skill levels because they always evaded contact. They were faster inherently because they wanted to evade physical contact with those bigger boys. And that's the result or that result we're seeing right now in the, in the Belgian national team. So it's not just an identification process related to youth. Does it continue on throughout the duration of a sports player's career? So once the players are 16, 17, 18 years old, things become a lot more difficult because, for example, a player might get, uh, sorry, a first professional contract um, when he's 16. And from that moment, it becomes very difficult to follow that up because they start training a lot more. They start getting injured. Testing is not as evident as it is at a younger age. So once they're 16, 17, 18, or once they get their first professional contracts, it, it gets very difficult to follow up those players. And I guess when a sports player has secured a contract, it's less about navigating whether they're an elite player now because they are. Yes, they are. But then, then again, we do know that soccer being one of the most popular sports in the world, you might get a professional contract, but you might still not be considered at an elite level because so many people are playing throughout the world. There are so many professional teams that merely getting a contract doesn't mean that you've really succeeded or that you've maximized your potential. So soccer aside, you were saying before that there are a number of sports areas here in Australia that you are now looking at in terms of talent identification. What are some of those sports? Yeah, so I'm mainly interested in team sports that are field-based. So we're trying to move our way into rugby union because, for example, we know that in rugby union, physical profiles of players are very important. Skill performance is very, very important for some of the players. But also AFL, a sport where if you are not extremely skillful, you can never make it to the highest level. So things like that really encourage me to look at other sports that involve some of the same performance variables that soccer does, but have one or two or three tweaks in specific or specifically that we need to look at. And when you say AFL, you need specific skills to make it into the really high elite. What are some of those skills? Yeah. So if you're not an accurate kicker, for example, or you don't have really good peripheral vision that allows you to make decisions when you are under pressure from the opposition, then it's almost impossible to make it to the highest level. So those things really interest me, looking at which are the best decision makers at the moment in the youth categories and actually do they stay the best decision makers? How can we potentially train decision making? How can we train skill proficiency, etc.? And as a talent identifier, having just two contrasting sports there, AFL and rugby union, you have to be able to gauge 
what skills are needed for certain players because the physique of those two sports team players are very different from one another. Yeah, absolutely. So if we might put an arbitrary number to that and say that 50% of rugby union profiles are the same as the AFL profiles, then that means that 50% is also different. We're not looking at tight forwards in rugby union. We're not looking at very, very skillful individuals. We're looking at individuals who are powerful, who have really fast accelerations, etc. While for AFL, we're looking at very skillful players who have the potential to be great and endurance athletes. So the profile of the sport really determines what we're going to be looking at. Job Franson, lecturer in sport and exercise science in the Faculty of Health at UTS, speaking to Jake Morecambe. Up next, why males should exercise their pelvic floor muscles. You're listening to Think Health on 2SER 107.3. Recently on the program, we spoke about incontinence among females, especially in the nursing and midwifery workforce. Well, did you know that males also experience incontinence? It's more likely if you have had prostate cancer, but can also occur as a result of age. Stuart Baptist is a senior physiotherapist and director of Sydney Men's Health Physiotherapy. He talks to us about how males can get acquainted with their pelvic floor muscles. Male incontinence is the involuntary leaking of urine um, that happens uh, predominantly to men uh, well as they age, but also uh, very commonly following prostate surgery, so surgery for prostate cancer. So does it happen to men who maybe haven't had surgery for prostate cancer? Uh, incontinence is a very common event as we age. Um, you only have to go into a nursing home to, to see the number of people that are wearing incontinence pads. And the old joke is that we start and end our lives in nappies, you know, and so incontinence is... Uh, an unfortunate relative inevitability as we age. How many men are affected by a male incontinence? Again, it's a difficult thing to put significant numbers towards. For example, prostate cancer itself is a, a very prevalent cancer in the male community. Probably the, it's more common than breast cancer. And um, one of the solutions for the prostate cancer is removing the prostate gland itself. Uh, and due to the proximity of the continence muscles, Um, they're often traumatised by the process of surgery. Uh, And so I'd say that almost uh, 100% of men will lick some degree of urine following prostate surgery. And that's quite normal, but how long should that leakage go on for? Um, For most men, it normally uh, settles within a 12-month period. Um, We're finding that with um, pre-operative pelvic floor training uh, and post-operative accurate training, we're actually able to shorten that time period considerably. Uh, and certainly with the introduction of more uh, accurate surgical techniques such as robotic surgery, we're finding that men are becoming drier a lot quicker. People seem to know a lot about female incontinence, but you don't really hear much about male incontinence. Why do you think that is? Well, I think um, men historically tend to have a health behaviour characteristic where if they have a problem, they dig a large hole, put their head in the sand and then cover their heads in um, and tend to try and ignore small problems that may kind of occur Um, And so what we're trying to do is educate men. In fact, they also own a pelvic floor. And if they actually exercise the pelvic floor regularly, we may be able to curb that weakening of the pelvic floor. So what sort of exercises should men be doing to help their pelvic floor? Men really need to know where their pelvic floor is. Um, 
because it's not just one muscle that extends from front to back, but a series of muscles that coordinate together. Uh, in the early stage, it's a little bit like playing golf. There's no point in just hitting the ball hard if you don't have a good technique. So one of the things that we've been working at with some of the researchers uh, from around Australia at the moment is looking at how how do we actually target the muscles that are responsible for urethral closure, which is at the front of the pelvic floor, rather than encouraging a very familiar anal dominant sensation. Because believe it or not, most men do know how to stop themselves from breaking wind. We just choose not to on occasion. <laughs> because with female incontinence, the exercises are pretty easy to do. They say you can do them on the bus. Is it the same with men or do they need to see a specialist or their GP first to really get the hang of it? Again, the thing with men is that we'll tend to follow the path of least resistance. So if you say pelvic floor and you say muscle, most men will grit their teeth and try as hard as they can to produce the outcome that they're looking for. But when that happens, what we see, the research has shown us, is that most men tend to squeeze with their anal passage, not their urethral part. Uh, And we're working on what's called transperineal ultrasound at the moment, where we do an ultrasound scan, a bit like um, when a woman has a baby. But we're actually looking to see what happens when the men contract the right muscles. And it's only when we get this uh, sense of contracting the right muscles that we can then progress on uh, to developing that muscle further as time goes by. So your role is a physio, but men who have had prostate surgery, is this the sort of exercise that they have to go to a physio for or is this something their urologist or GP can teach them? The kind of research that we're involved in at the moment or certainly at the clinic that we're at here um, is very, very cutting-edge stuff. kind of in the process of being validated um, and Australia is leading the world at the moment. You mentioned that you're trying to encourage men to do these sort of exercises before they do go for surgery but is there any benefit for starting it even earlier in life? Indeed there is because like I say even if you don't develop prostate cancer and don't have an operation uh, the propensity for males to become incontinent as they age the evidence is there if you walk into a nursing home it's I think it's one of the most common reasons for admission into nursing homes actually for uh, continency-related issues. So uh, it, it always amused me that um, you know men spend a lot of time in the gym trying to work out and look good uh, to live a long, healthy life, but they actually ignore the muscle that's going to keep them uh, out of the nursing home. So it's, it's kind of an interesting uh, way that we want to think about things is that we want to educate men earlier in life as to that they have a pelvic floor and that if they spend a little bit of time identifying it, then they can integrate that into normal functional exercise patterns uh, down the track. Stuart Baptist, a senior physiotherapist and director of Sydney Men's Health Physiotherapy. Don't forget, if you'd like to find out more about anything you heard today, you can visit us at 2ser.com forward slash thinkhealth. You can also tweet us at 2ser. Please remember that journalists are not doctors. If we've made you ask questions, which is great, go and see your GP. This show is produced with the support of the University of Technology Sydney Faculty of Health. And remember to subscribe, rate and review us on iTunes if you enjoyed what you heard today. I'm Ellen Leibeter. See you next week for more.